Acts chapter 2, if you will, please. Verse 42. And they've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing uh, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As we're working through Acts 2.42, we come to the fourth pillar of the church in which Luke finds it uh, incredibly important to remind us and to show us and to demonstrate for us that the early church were devoted to these four things. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And this morning we will look at the fourth of these and that is the prayers. Let me start with a question. Is anyone here completely satisfied with where their prayer life is? How many of you perfected your prayer life? So no, nobody's perfected their prayer life? Uh, anybody here feel that their prayer life could not improve in some way? Raise your hand. We all can improve, right? And you know what? We're in great company. You know, I read A.W. Tozer believed he could have a better prayer life than he did. Billy Graham's one regret in the end of his life, he just stated he wished he was a man of prayer more. C.H. Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, just to name a few. Warren Worsby, all believe that their prayer lives could be better. I don't know if I've ever met a believer who said that their prayer life was where it needed to be. I definitely have never met a pastor who was satisfied with the prayer life of their church. They always felt it could be better. Hey, prayer is something we can all improve upon, right? And I think we all know how important prayer is. I don't have to come up here and to make a case for you to say that prayer is important for us as believers in Jesus Christ. But why is it that when individuals are asked or churches are asked uh, about their prayer lives, why do they all believe that it could be better? Why, why do some feel that they can have some healthy churches and yet find that their prayer lives of, of their individuals are so weak and they're disturbed by it and they, they don't know how to correct it? Hey, I could get up here and tell you, you all need to pray more, all right? Every one of you needs to pray more. Pray more. You, 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 you. Let me call you out by name, Okay. All right, let's pray. We all know we can improve, right? See, but there's a big difference between the early church and the church today when it, concerning prayer. I've often stated it as this. Prayer was as natural to the first Christian as was breathing. It was never the last resort, but always their first choice. Prayer was absolutely a natural part of the believer's life found in the book of Acts. 
How many of you have had a drink of water on a daily basis? How many of you eat on a daily basis? How many of you eat too much on a daily basis? (laughs) I'm kidding. How many of you sleep on a daily basis? Yeah, man, we all do. You know why we do those things? Because we need to do those things. Our body has been designed to require those things to survive. I believe that the difference today and the difference uh, of the church there back in the book of Acts was they knew that they needed to be men and women and a church that prays. They knew their need for it to the point where it was so natural for them to pray, it came to them like breathing. Now, being Jewish believers, prayer was already part of their DNA. They grew up as Jewish individuals praying three times a day. And if you lived anywhere near the temple, you would make your way to the temple to pray in the court of the temple. And they would pray three times a day, remembering the blessings of God and praising God for those blessings. So for them, prayer was a natural thing for them to do. The whole city stopped. The whole community stopped at these three times a day and prayed. Even if you remember reading the book of Daniel when he was in Babylon, separated from Jerusalem, separated from Israel. When certain times of the day came about, he prayed. And when he was forbidden to do it, he prayed anyways in the direction of their homeland, Jerusalem. Prayer was as natural to them as breathing is to us. It's part of their DNA. As I began to look at the book of Acts in its entirety, I saw that they carried into their Christian lives a lot of their Jewish tradition, but it had new vigor and it had new fervency because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. As one wrote, they did not change their practice of prayer as a result of their conversion, but continued in their form of practice with renewed dedication. It was just part of their everyday life. And as Christians, they just moved with God, with the Spirit, and allowed prayer to be a natural element of their Christian faith. I was reading some of the commentators on this particular passage and I noticed a pattern of consistency amongst their comments written at different periods of time. Listen to what they had to say. This was the fourth principle, the practice of the early church and expressed completely dependence on the Lord for worship, guidance, perseverance, and service. The early church realized their need for God's ongoing help and the importance of praise and devoted themselves to prayer. A community at prayer is something Luke emphasizes about the community life. It seeks God's direction and is dependent upon God because God's family of people uh, do not work by feelings or intuitions, but by the activity, uh, actively submitting themselves to the Lord's direction. Prayer. Dependency. Need. Reliance upon. 
are words that are used of this early church to help strengthen and help them realize their need for continuous prayer as believers in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite pastors, H.A. Ironside, wrote this in his famous commentary on Acts. He says, prayer is an expression of dependence. And when the people of God really feel their need, you will find them flocking together to pray. A neglected prayer meeting indicates very little recognition of one's true need. I'm going to leave that up there for a while. I want you to read it. Of one's true need. Isn't it true that we often dismiss things that aren't uh, priority to us at the moment? And even when we're told that we need to do something, how often do we become very, oh, I don't know, reluctant? Or we become uh, procrastinators when it comes to those things that we need. You go for your annual checkup to the doctor, and the doctor quizzes you about your diet or about your exercise and and you know what you need to do right and you're reminded of it constantly but you just don't make a priority to do it the question then becomes do you know that you really need it or is it after something fails or a problem occurs that that need then becomes a reality is it possible that the lack of prayer that we find in church And in the life of the individual believer is due to the fact that we no longer think we need to. That's a big statement. But I ask you the question, if we really knew that we needed to, would we be more diligent to do so? And we've seen it. Some of the largest prayer meetings that we've had at this church uh, came after 9-11 or some other crisis in the area. I've seen prayer lives of individuals just incredibly get robust after they've been given a diagnosis of a concerning disease. Uh, We need to then, right? It becomes a reality. Uh, we, We need to do this. And until we come to that point, I don't think we're ever truly going to have the prayer life that we need to have. The early church knew that's what they needed to do. And looking at the book of Acts in its entirety, it starts out with prayer in chapter 1. It's part of the characteristic of the church meeting in chapter 2. It was their first response to every situation, chapter 4. They guided themselves by prayer and their decisions were made through prayer in chapter 6 and 13. And their ministry was guided by prayer in chapter 9 and in other places. As one said, God doesn't need our prayers, but He loves to respond to them and He draws us into establishing His will in the world through our prayers. In our age of instant communication, let us not forget that that prayers takes us right into the throne room of heaven itself. Prayer. We need to be people and a church of prayer. And the only way we can sufficiently bring this about is if we all are reminded of our need to be prayerful. 
And throughout the New Testament, we are given passage after passage after passage where the early church, even 30 years after its conception and birth, needed to be reminded of their need for prayer. So it doesn't necessarily have to be predicated upon our personal circumstances uh, closing in and overwhelming us from every direction before we become men and women of prayer. There are biblical realities that are always constant that bring us to a place where we know and have to identify the reality of our need for prayer if we simply just believe what these passages say. I'm going to lead you into six passages today that I want you to walk the New Testament with me. And I want you to, if you are one of those who feels that defiling your Bible with highlighting is okay and that God will not judge you, um, then I would encourage you to do so. Because I believe that we need to be reminded of these things. Paul made it his mission to remind us of our necessity to pray along with our necessity to breathe, to drink water, to eat, to sleep. As a believer in Jesus Christ, our life identity, we have the necessity of prayer. I can't imagine for a moment, as I read Revelations 4 and 5 and get a glimpse into the throne room of God and the beauty that is bestowed there, I can't imagine any one of us at that moment, standing before our Lord and Savior, not kicking ourselves for spending, not spending more time in that throne room in prayer during our everyday life. Because that's what we do. When we kneel in prayer, when we come in prayer before God, it is entering that throne room. If you want a glimpse of it, read Revelation 4 and 5 to see the wonders of it all. You know, so many people tell me that they need a vacation. I need to get away from things for a little while. Things are just getting crazy. I need to go to a place where I can just let it all wash away. I need to go someplace really significant like Hawaii. Hawaii's great. Never been there. I heard about it, but uh, it's great, I've heard. But if I had my choice between Hawaii and the the throne room of God, I'm going to take the throne room of God. Even those little huts in Tahiti where you can sleep right over the water, I'm going to heaven first in my prayer life. You need to get away from things for a while, then get someplace quiet and start to pray. Enter into that throne room of God. Read Revelation 4 and 5, uh, Hebrews, uh, about coming in boldly before our Lord into his throne room and begin to pray. Talk about getting away for a little while. For the early church, it was as easy as breathing. So how do I remind us of our need? That was the challenge I was wrestling with all week. How do I bring our church, each and every one of us, back to the reality of the necessity of prayer in our personal Christian life? Now, most of you are probably already there, and you already say, yes, I need to pray. But let's, we just admitted that we need to go a little further in it. We need to, um, we need to get more self-discipline in it. How do we do so? How can I remind you of your need? How do I show you how important it is for your personal Christian life? I think walking through the New Testament a little bit, letting me give you some verses and some passages where Paul is pleading with people and showing us the necessity for prayer. And that first 
journey leads us to the book of Ephesians chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me. As Paul the Apostle concludes this incredible book, this letter to the Ephesian church, he reminds them of the spiritual warfare that we as believers find ourselves within. I do believe that many believers have lost the reality of the spiritual warfare in which we are truly contending in. But Paul demonstrates for us, he spells out very clearly for us, as a prisoner there in Rome, waiting trial, chained to a Roman centurion, or a Roman soldier at least, he gives us this description in verse 10, and notice how he concludes in verse 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's our goal, to be strong in the strength of his might. How do we do so? Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes uh, for your feet, having put on the readiness to give the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, so many stop there. And I feel like by doing so, all you have done is put the, assembled the soldier together without putting the batteries in its back. Anybody ever get a Christmas present? You open it up, you're so excited about it, you assemble it all together, and then you realize you don't have the batteries to empower it. And you're like, Daddy, we gotta get batteries. It's Christmas, everything's closed for a month. (sighs) We've all been there, right? Or is it just me? My parents always forgot the batteries, guys. It's just, it was just one of those things. I think they did it to us purposely, but that's just me. If we just simply armed ourselves or girded ourselves and clothed ourselves with the armor of God as we have it here, I believe that because of the construction of the original language, if we don't go into verse 18 immediately, we are putting all that together without putting the batteries in the back. Verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. That's the key to it all. In the original language, it's very clear in the syntactical graph that that is the key. Preparing yourself with the whole armor of God and then empowering yourself through prayer. That's how we engage in the conflict. That's how we engage in the warfare. That's how we take it to Him in our personal Christian life. It's through our prayer lives. That's where all of this now takes place. At best, we could say putting on all of the the suit of armor and then standing outside the battle. Standing on the sidelines, never getting in the game. 
It's prayer that brings it all together. A prayer life. The spiritual warfare has not ceased. If anything, it's increased, hasn't it? And will increase until the coming and return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So number one, our need for prayer is to be able to stand in the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves. And every believer in Christ should be part of that battle. If not, then maybe we are not where God would have us to be. Number one, we need it for spiritual warfare. Now, if we turn to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, these should be in order for you. Nothing will draw us out of faith faster than fear. When fear overwhelms our heart and grips our mind, it is easy then to become faithless in our relationship with our Savior and trusting Him to see us through. Fear can overwhelm us. So to counter that, look at what Paul asks us to do, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness or your graciousness be known to everyone. For the Lord is at hand. Paul is asking the Philippian church to be witnesses in their times of trial and trouble. He is asking them to be gracious, reasonable, during a time of significant persecution. Let those who are persecuting you see your innocence and your grace and how reasonable you are. Now that's very difficult to do, isn't it? When you are overwhelmed by anxiety and fear. And rationally, they could be uh, completely justified because their lives were on the line. And if not their physical life, then their uh, livelihood itself. They could lose their jobs being persecuted as a Christian. They could have their possessions taken from them as a Christian. Uh, They could lose their life, specifically if they would not worship the deity of Nero or the deity of the Roman Empire, emperor of that time. There's many different ways in which they could find themselves in a place of persecution. And Paul's saying, now greet that persecution by rejoicing in the Lord and let your graciousness be known and knowing that the Lord is at hand. They debate over what that means. It could mean that the Lord is with you as you are going through this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you even during these times of trouble and tribulation. And as they have treated me, they shall treat you. That's a very plausible interpretation of that phrase. Or the Lord is at hand. The Lord could return at any moment looking for the faithfulness of his followers to be found. And then he commands them in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone is fearful or worried or anxious, fearful, overwhelmed, and and you're talking with them, you may be tempted to say to them, just get over it and trust God. And then they look at you like, you're mean. And you're not being mean per se. You're just saying, hey, get your eyes back on the Lord. But they're not taking it that way. See, we, when feelings are challenged today, uh, people get very offended, you know. But this is the way I feel, and I cannot help the way I feel. But that's not what Paul's saying here. 
Paul is commanding them in an imperative not to be fearful, not to be anxious. Literally saying to them, get past it. That's what he's saying here. And he's saying this because you have the Holy Spirit. He's saying this because you can enter into prayer. Look at what he says. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, whatever that request is. Let it be known to God, and what is going to happen in verse 7? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Fear will keep you from prayer. Anxiety will keep you from prayer. Paul's saying, get past that. Because what you desperately need to do at that moment is to pray. I can't tell you how many times my wife or myself have counseled somebody and encouraged them uh, gently, softly, with sensitivity in a time where they are overwhelmed by anxiety, fear, worry, whatever it may be. Take this to the Lord in prayer. But that's not going to help. It it is going to help. You don't understand my circumstances. He understands your circumstances. And he is bigger than any complex problem you think you face. Take it to him. I will go with you. I will pray with you. I will encourage you. Take it to him. And only he, through his glory, can give those individuals that peace that surpasses all understanding. Only he can do that. Now, he's saying it to people who are on the verge of possibly losing their lives for, the, for their faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying, Paul's saying, don't be anxious. Stop it now. Let your graciousness be known. Let your, um, let your reasonableness be known to everyone who is around you. For the Lord is at hand. He is with you or he is returning. And do not be anxious about anything. But take it to God in prayer. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Second need for prayer is to get over fear, to allow us to continue to walk in faith. Number three is found in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Very interesting verse that you may have read through quickly. And again, this is one of the wonders of the Greek language because of the word that is found in there, watchful. As Paul begins this incredible uh, chapter of Colossians, he states to them now in his exhortation, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, that is prayer, with thanksgiving. Our third need that will drive us to prayer is the need to be watchful. This word watchful means to be awake, It means to be ready to learn. It means ready to see what God will do. It means resisting the spiritual drowsiness caused by the world's distractions. It's basically asking us that as we pray steadfastly, as we continue in prayer to be watchful and waiting on God in anticipation for God to answer our prayers. Not falling asleep but readily and alertly watching and waiting with anticipation to see what God will do next. Why is it 
that we are so reluctant to believe that God answers prayer. I can't tell you how many prayers I've seen God answer over the 30-some years of my Christian faith. And I bet you, you could say the same thing for the duration of time that you have been a Christian. Then why are you so concerned about God answering prayer? Well, number one, I find the concern that people have has to do with the manner in which God will answer prayer. Yes, I want God to answer prayer, but I also want Him to answer it the way I want Him to answer it. Oh, wait a minute now. He doesn't promise that. Or number two, I want God to answer prayer, but I want Him to answer prayer when I want Him to answer prayer. Well, unfortunately, sometimes God says to wait. And knowing His timing is always perfect, that displays that our timing is always usually imperfect. Waiting on God is one of the hardest things to do as a believer in Jesus Christ, patiently waiting on God to resolve things. But as time goes on, I have now come to the conclusion that it's often, it's always, let me say it that way, better to allow God to resolve something than me trying to get in there and resolve it and just make a bigger mess of the whole thing. We need to be watchful. When Jesus was instructing the disciples, he asked them to come and pray with him that night before his crucifixion. And what did they do? They all fell asleep. And he continued to pray. God is asking us to pray and to be watchful to see what he's going to do next with anticipation, with expectation, as a means of learning. It means uh, of staying awake and alert to what God is doing next. It means that we are um, not being distracted by the things of this world and allowing those things to cause us to be drowsy in our spiritual lives. Have you ever been somewhere where you're fighting to stay awake? Maybe you're sitting on the couch at home after a hard day and you're just sitting there in front or you're reading your Bible or you're reading a book you enjoy and all you just keep nap jerking and you're on the same page for six hours. Has that happened to anyone else? And how hard it is to stay awake when it's so warm and you've got your Snuggie on. I don't know if you go there, but... And you just simply fall asleep. He's saying, continue steadfastly in prayer, but being watchful, being awake, seeing what God is going to do next. Number four, it's impossible to glorify God unless we are a people of prayer. Listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 1, 11, and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill your every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God and our Lord and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot glorify our Father in heaven, without being men and women of prayer. Point and example is Jesus himself. How often did he run for times of solitude to get away from everyone so he could connect with the Father again? And when it was all said and done, when you come to John chapter 17, his whole emphasis is, Father, I pray that I can glorify you in this hour. If we are going to truly reflect Christ to a lost world, we must be men and women of prayer. 
again, all of this helping us uh, rediscover and revitalizing our need for prayer. Here's one of my favorites that I very early on in my Christian life highlighted. And that was when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. When he says, first of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Supplication is praying um, for the needs of individuals. Prayers there would be praises. Uh, intercessions would be praying for the needs of other people. And thanksgiving would be simply that thanksgiving made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and uh, dignified in every way. And he says, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. How many of you have friends, family members, possibly spouses, children who don't know the Lord and are concerned about their eternal salvation. If you are, then I encourage you this morning to begin your evangelistic efforts with prayer. Praying for them earnestly, day by day, asking God to open their eyes, to open their hearts, open their minds to receive the, Jesus, the, the gospel and to understand their need for Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle made it clear to this young pastor, Timothy, this is where it all begins. I want you to pray for these people, that they may get saved and then you would live peacefully without antagonists in those high places looking to persecute you at every possible means. Pray for them that they might get saved. This is pleasing to God. This is honoring to God because he desires all people to be saved. He desires everyone to be saved. And therefore, we must be praying for them as instructed to by the Lord. Our fifth requirement that brings prayer back to a need is the need of evangelism. We need to be prayerfully praying for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, 1 Peter 4, 7. As he ends this letter, Peter writing... The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What he is saying here, in the context of all that he has written, is he's saying we're coming close to the end. The end is near. The return of Jesus Christ is at hand. One of the doctrines that I hold to very strongly is the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. I fully believe that the apostles, the disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ in the New Testament were watching and waiting with anticipation for the return of their Savior each and every day. Every one of their letters talks about the return of Jesus Christ. And they know that there is an urgency now created because time is short. And Christ is going to return. And in that return, he's going to judge the world for their rejection of him. I believe that Jesus Christ can return at any moment. 
And as a result of that, I believe that I live in that um, immediate of his return, that it could happen at any moment. Living with an urgency and a passion that I believe the early church had. Even in the book of Acts, even when you get into chapters 3 and so forth and 4, you discover that they were hoping that everyone would get saved who was going to get saved that way to usher in the return of Jesus Christ. And so um, they were hoping for that, not knowing that God had a little bit further plans in mind. Here we are, closer to the return of Christ than ever before. And yet so many believers seem to be living as if Christ isn't going to return at all. Because in a a true understanding of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, John tells us that we are going to re-examine our lives to see if we're walking according uh, according to how he would have us to walk. If we were going to walk in holiness, as he says. And yet I kind of believe now that in just seeing some of the apathy and some of the carnality and some of the, um, uh, you know, complacency of the church today, I can't believe that they truly believe that he could return at any moment. But the early church said, be sober-minded, self-controlled. The end is at hand. And he says so, notice how he words it, for the sake of your prayers. It appears that Peter may have anticipated that if we lose this reality, our prayers would begin to wane. That's the impression that I get. If we lose the reality of the return of Jesus Christ, we're not going to be as diligent or vigilant to pray as we need to. I give you these as elements to help you rediscover your need for prayer. This week, I would encourage you to chew on them, to look at them more intently, maybe a little bit more deeply. I ask you to consider how this reflects upon your prayer life, to ask God to help you reestablish that need in your heart for prayer that is so desperately needed in all of our hearts. That's the only way we will truly become the praying people that we desire to become is when we understand our need for prayer. I'll close with this. William MacDonald, he has a way of saying things that I truly appreciate. Paul never tries, tires, excuse me, of exhorting the people of God to be diligent in their prayer life. Doubtless, one of the regrets we all will have when we get to heaven will be that we did not spend more time in prayer especially when we realize the extent to which our prayers were answered. There's a great deal of mystery in connection with the whole subject of prayer, many questions which cannot be answered. But the best attitude for the Christian is not to seek to analyze, dissect, or understand prayer's deeper mysteries. The best approach is to keep praying in simple faith, leaving aside one's intellectual doubts. So often we are reluctant to pray because we are limiting God in his ability to the limits that we ourselves have. But he's God. There's nothing that he cannot do. And I found that in the 32 years that I've been a Christian, God loves to answer his kids' prayers. He loves it. 
God loves spending time with his kids. He'll never shoo you away. He'll never ask you to come back later. He'll never ask you to email him or make an appointment with the angels before coming. He always welcomes us in. Fully knowing what's on our heart and what's in our mind before we ever get there. Knowing what we are in need of way before we ever come and bring it to his attention. But when we come before him and we bring those things to his attention, even though he knows all of that beforehand, we get the blessing of spending time in the presence of him. Allowing him to minister to our hearts. I can't tell you how often I have been just perplexed by something or overwhelmed by something or my heart is growing anxious concerning something that I simply have gone to prayer and just lifted up my eyes to heaven, even sometimes not even able to get out words and already feeling the presence of the Spirit of God in Him with me. And all of a sudden my my heart starts feeling better. Nothing's changed, but I just know He's with me. That he cares about me. That he knows what I'm going through. That he knows the anxieties and the fears that I have. He knows my weaknesses. He knows me better than I know myself. And yet he welcomes me into his presence. And he encourages me just by me sitting there in his presence. Taking time with him each and every day. Allowing me to share my hearts. Casting my cares upon him because he cares for me. It's an incredible, it's an incredible privilege that we have as believers in Jesus Christ that we don't take advantage of enough of. So let me encourage you that we all believe that we could be more proficient in our prayer lives, more diligent in our prayer lives. And we are amongst great company. But that being said, let us do something about it And hopefully, as I've reminded you of your need for prayer, you will take those things into consideration. See that those realities still exist today and have not changed regardless of your circumstances and therefore bring us to the point where we still need to be men and women of prayer. Then we will be a church of prayer, encouraging that prayer. But that being said, if we want to see God start dynamically working in our church, whatever that means, we need to be men and women of prayer simply because it's a necessity of the Christian faith.